the ruling party had been in power for years. They had become ruthless, sadistic, and tyrannical. Their ironclad lock on the country's economy, military, and social and governmental institutions at all levels was considered pretty much unbreakable. As such, that ruling party was hated and despised by those opposing or subjugated parties. But one day, there came this, this hope and this news of a rising star in the ranks of the opposition. News of one who would one day rise to break their power, to overthrow them, and to himself rise to the rank of supreme and ultimate commander. Not only that, but this one who would overthrow the ruling party's ironclad lock on everything in the country was a very selfless, very likable, very charismatic leader. One who attracted large crowds. One who commanded people's attention. One whom the common folks could easily relate to. They could identify with and therefore one that they found very worthy of supporting. And so, they did, and in droves, they did. Many folks, for example, left their homes, their families, and their family businesses far behind in order to follow him. Matthew chapter four, verses 17 through 22. And those that did so were told, were promised that there, that when he came to power, that they would have wonderful places in his new administration, prominent positions in his new administration, Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 through 29. Number of his more devoted followers were also very heavy financial contributors to his cause helping to support him and, and his fledgling little party, as it were, financially. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And so, for just a little under four years, this man traveled the country far and wide, preaching and teaching this message about how much better life would be when he came to ultimate power, preaching and teaching how much better life would be in his kingdom and under his new law and his new administration. As the time drew near for the final showdown between himself and his tyrannical opponents who were still in power at that time and who would do anything they had to in order to maintain their death grip on that power, John 11, 47 through 53. He entered the capital city on Sunday afternoon. He entered the city with all the, the pomp and fanfare of a presidential victory celebration parade, Matthew chapter 21, 8 through 11. A couple of days later, on Tuesday, he held a, or he had, a day-long series of debates with those in power in which he won every round, hands down, on every issue, period. Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, through chapter 23 and verse 39. But despite winning all the debates on Tuesday, on Thursday night, he was betrayed by the treasurer of his own little group, his own little party, if you will. 
He was subsequently arrested, tried, convicted on false charges, drummed up by those cutthroat opponents who would stop at nothing in order to maintain their power, as we said, Matthew 26, verses 47 through 68 in this case. And he was ultimately sentenced to death, a death sentence that was to be carried out immediately, Matthew chapter 27. And so, at that point, what of his followers, what of his supporters now, I want you to really think about this, and that's why I, I kind of created this little parable. I want you to really think about this. What about his followers and supporters now? Their leader, in whom they had invested all their hopes, all their dreams, three and a half years of their lives, left everything to follow, that leader had suffered the ultimate defeat, not just a defeat, but the ultimate defeat, having been killed, crucified, murdered, at the hands of his conscienceless opponents. Surely, that must have seemed like, that must have seemed like the end of the world to those folks, wouldn't you think? The absolute end of the world. Look at where we find them next. They're still in shock. Several days later. And they are, they are so in shock, they are so in fear of their immediate future that we find them locked behind closed doors or we find them behind closed doors. Brethren, for them, as far as they were concerned, it was over. It was done. They were cooked. There was no hope. Their life would never be the same. It was the end of the world. Or was it? Open your Bibles to John 20. Please. Here they are behind closed doors in, in fear of those who are still in power, in fear of those who had crucified their Lord. They're, they're hunkered down and, and their immediate future is so unknown and, and, and they're in fear. John 20, verse 19. Sunday night after his resurrection, it says, then that same day, or then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. Do you see the contrast between fear and peace. I have those two highlighted in my Bible. If you highlight your Bible, think about this. Jesus is making a contrast. Here they are huddled down in fear. And Jesus comes and says, peace be with you. Don't miss that contrast. What's Jesus saying when he walks in there and he says, he says, peace be with you. What's he telling them? Did he know they were in fear? Did he know that? Yeah, he knew that. He knows everything. He knew that. What was he telling them? Your fear isn't necessary. That's what he was telling them with peace be with you. Your fear is totally unnecessary. And, and here's, here's kind of why. Hadn't Jesus told them that before? Hadn't he had that same message for them before? Certainly had. Only about 72 hours earlier, what had Jesus said to them? 72 hours earlier. What had he told them? Remember what he told them? Thursday, this is Sunday night, first day of the week, in the evening. Back up three days, back up 72 hours, back up to Thursday night. That's all it was. What did he tell them Thursday night when he was assembled with them? In John 14, verse 27. Remember what he said? Peace, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. 
neither let it be. 72 hours earlier, he said, don't be afraid, don't fear, peace be with you. And he didn't say it just once. Later on that same Thursday night, just 72 hours prior in John 16, 33, what did he say? These things I have spoken to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Yeah, you're going to have problems. But be of good cheer, he says. I've overcome the world. John 16, 33. So when Jesus shows up Sunday night, and, and says to them in John chapter 20 and verse 19, peace be with you. What we need to understand, that was not a new message. That was not something like, oh really? Never heard that before? Three days earlier he had repeatedly told them, you don't have to be afraid, peace, I'm leaving you my peace. So, so how is it possible that he says three days earlier, don't be in fear, and here they are huddled up in abject fear. Three days earlier, he says, peace, I'm leaving my peace with you. They have none, and he has to show up and remind them again. How did that happen? See, these weren't new truths or teachings. They were just teachings that his disciples had lost sight of, in light of, their recent losses. Just truths that his disciples had lost sight of in light of their own recent losses. And it's really enlightening to also notice how Luke describes the same Sunday evening event. Turn to me to Luke 24. Luke gives us a few more details of this meeting. Luke chapter 24, if you would please. beginning in verse 36. Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 36. Two disciples who'd been on the road to Emmaus, they met with the Lord, didn't recognize him. When they finally did, they came back to the disciples. This is that same Sunday night. And so as they're reporting these things, Luke 24 and verse 36, now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. Here we go again. Luke said, yeah, that's exactly what he said. Peace to you. But look at the next sentence. But they were terrified and frightened. Suppose they had seen a spirit, and he said to them, why are you troubled? And, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now, if I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, well, <laughs> Look what we've just been through, you know? It's a little disheartening. Now, again, Scripture says in verse 37, they were terrified and frightened. Why were they so troubled? Verse 38, because they had doubted, verse 38. Why had they doubted? Here's why. Because what they had just recently been through had somehow caused them to completely, don't miss this, what they had just been through had caused them to completely lose sight of the fact that God was still in control. That's what had happened. God was still in control. This is a fact that Jesus goes on in verses 24 and 25 to remind them of in no uncertain terms. That everything's happened just, just like scripture says. He reminds them, hey, God's in control here. Always has been, never relinquished it. Then he goes on to say something Jesus does after that. Something that neither they nor we, neither they nor we, that means you and me, should ever lose sight of, ever again. And he says it in verses 46 through 48. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name 
to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And he says to them who were there, and you are witnesses of these things. Do you understand what he said to them that we should never forget in those three verses? Here's what he said to them that we must never forget. Their job, as well as ours, no matter who is in power, no matter what obstacles, what resistance, or what personal persecution might be encountered, their job as well as ours was and is only one and one and only fold. That is to go preach the gospel to every person who will listen that they might have the chance to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. That he who believes that gospel and is baptized might be saved. That was their own, that's what he tells them. He said, look, the whole point of all of this is so that you can go preach the gospel, right? Their number one priority, again, no matter who was in power, no matter what they encountered, no matter the obstacles, no matter the threats, no matter the resistance, they're very simple. He said, here's your job. You go tell everybody what I've done for them. That's the whole point of all of this, he says. I would like for us to spend the remainder of this morning looking at exactly how well they did that. And I'm not going to turn to a lot of these texts, you know them, but if you're taking notes, take them fast, and if you're not, then go back and watch the live stream. <laughs> Just before I get started, as a side note, I, I gotta say that in studying for this lesson, those of you that have put lessons together, either men or ladies for ladies class, Bible classes, whatever, sometimes you get to exploring something, you go wow, and you keep going wow, and you keep going wow, and before long you find out that you spent like six hours with something you can't put into a lesson because you don't have time, okay? Guilty. In studying for this lesson, one of the things that I did, had the opportunity to do, was I got to read quite a lot about the Roman emperors. Okay? And let me tell you, especially since reading about those Roman emperors and everything that went on in their lives, well, in this one report, I honestly believe that by comparison, you and I know absolutely nothing about governmental corruption or Christian persecution by our leaders. Absolutely nothing. And if you want to explore that further in ways that I don't have time to this morning, I got a website for you to take down. It's very easy. It's www.ancient, which is spelled A-N-C-I-E-N-T, ancient.eu, that's it. Look up Roman emperors. Read down through, even just in the time of Christ, the Roman emperors and their families. And I really believe we know nothing about governmental persecution because we're Christians, nothing at all. So let's take a look at how well they did that. Here we go. In Acts chapter four, verses five through seven, Peter is brought before that same murderous, hostile group of officials that was in power that had his leader killed. But he had been charged by his resurrected Lord with one overriding responsibility. Tell them about him. And so that's exactly what Peter did, verses eight and following of Acts four. And God took care of both Peter and those with him, verses 23 through 31. And the church grew in their love and care for one another Acts 4, 32 through 37. In Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 28, the apostles had so infuriated their local governing authorities by teaching about their Lord Jesus that those authorities had them put in prison and eventually brought before them again. But, the apostles had been charged by their resurrected Lord with one overriding responsibility. Tell them 
about him. And so they did. Verses 29 through 32 of Acts 5. This made their local governing authorities so furious that they wanted to kill them right there and then. Verse 33. But God took care of them. Verses 34 through 41. And daily, in the temple, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ, Acts 5, 42. In Acts chapter 6, we see a good brother named Stephen. And he's called before that same murderous council for doing exactly what we just said, for teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. However, like all Christians of every age, Stephen has been charged by his resurrected Lord with, get, you begin to see a pattern here? One, overriding responsibility. Tell them about him. And so, he did. Even though they sent him home to heaven to be with his Lord forever for it, Acts 7. In Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we see a murderous persecution break out against the Lord's church by those holding high religious office and authority in Jerusalem. We see our Christian brothers and sisters, I can't imagine what this would be like, but we see Christian brothers and sisters being dragged out of the homes. I can't imagine what it would be like to have somebody come over there to the parsonage, knock the door down, and come in and drag us out of there for being Christians and putting us in prison. But that's exactly what was happening in Acts 8, 1 through 3, with our brothers and sisters. And they were being dragged from their homes simply for being members of the church Christ. And we think, we got it rough? Wow. Really? We see others that scatter from Jerusalem in those verses. They scatter from Jerusalem. They run for their lives because of that persecution. But no matter who was in power, who was pursuing them, or the intensity of the persecution, they had been charged by their resurrected Lord with one and only one overriding responsibility. Tell everybody, everywhere you go, about him. And so, they did. Guess what happened? The church grew immensely. Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 40, Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. As we get into Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, we see that King Herod, or we see that Herod, had James, the brother of John, James the apostle, beheaded. Had Peter arrested in order to do the same thing to him. And we think we know what persecution is? That's not going to happen today. It's not going to happen by a long shot. It isn't. You're not going to get beheaded. Nobody's coming through that door this morning, swords in hand, to behead you because you're here. It's not going to happen. But it happened to them. But God intervenes. Peter is spared. <laughs> and Herod died and was eaten by worms. Guess God took care of that, huh? However, once again, we see that no matter who is in power, how hostile they might be, or what persecution that they might seek to inflict, as a result, the Lord's people have still been charged with one overriding responsibility. Tell them about him. And so, they did. Verses 24 and 25 of Acts 12. Now, I, I could go on with this, but hopefully everybody's got the idea. And if you haven't, you can watch it again, but you know, it's pretty simple at this point. If we were to read throughout the book of Acts and beyond, we'd see the same pattern. We'd see 
preaching, teaching, life and death persecution, and then more preaching and teaching being presented. No matter who's in power or what they did to those disciples as a result. And it didn't matter if the persecution came from or in the form of devout and prominent women and chief men of the city as it did in Acts chapter 13 and verse 50 or if that persecution came in the form of violent attempts to stone them by the Jews and the Gentiles and their rulers alike, Acts 14, verses 5 and 19, didn't phase them, didn't stop them, didn't even slow them down from carrying out the one overriding responsibility that the resurrected Lord and Savior had given them, and that was to tell them about him. And so, they did. Acts 14, verses 20 through 28 and others. Even when, even when the one in power forced them, expelled them from their homes just for being members of the Church of Christ. Can you imagine? Somebody coming into prior Somebody coming in Shota, somebody coming into Locust and saying, you have five minutes to vacate this house. You're no longer welcome in this town. Leave or die because you're Christian. We see that happened to our brethren in the first century, particularly to Priscilla and Aquila. Acts chapter 18, look there please. In Acts chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, look what it says. When I find it, when I get to it, I'll read it to you. Here we go. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and there he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. Now, granted, I understand these were Jews, but in those days, Christians were still considered part of a sect of Judaism. And I want to give you a few insights from that website on Roman emperors that I referenced earlier in, in light of Claudius here. L listen to this. Like his predecessors, Claudius was paranoid, quick to anger, and did not hesitate to put supposed enemies to death. This paranoia was not without foundation, though. Although one particular revolt was easily put down, resulting in many of the participants being executed, ties to the conspirators led to many high-ranking officials in Rome. Claudius had 35 senators and 400 others executed. Now, if you think for one minute that somebody in this country, I don't care what office they hold, has the power to have senators executed on a whim, you know that's not going to happen. But this is what they lived under. Claudius' paranoia did not stop with conspirators like his predecessor, Caligula. He had problems with the city's Jews, and to avoid further rioting, he had them all expelled from the city. And again, I understand these are Jews, but they were considered God's people in those days for the, by those that didn't understand the whole New Covenant. As with those who came before him, this is, this is one of the most amazing things that I read about the Roman emperors. It's no wonder they had everybody around them killed if they just whispered wrong, because almost all of them died by violent means. Somebody got them. I wouldn't have wanted to be an emperor, because it meant you were dying sooner rather than later. For example, as with those who came before him, Claudius was not to die naturally. Agrippina, that's his wife, is suspected in his death, for Claudius died shortly after eating poison mushrooms that were given to him by his beloved wife. As she had wished, her son Nero then soon ascended to the throne of the empire and a new era of depravity and corruption began. You see, She'd been married before and she had a son named Nero and see, he, he also had been. And, and so when they got together, she 
from what I read, went after him because he was emperor, and so they got married, and so that put her son Nero possibly in line for the throne next, but she had to get rid of him. So she is believed to have killed her husband with poison in order that Nero could rise to the throne. Nero was the emperor from 54 to 68 AD. Listen to this. His 14-year reign represents everything decadent about that period in Roman history. He was self-indulgent, cruel, and violent. This is the one with ultimate power that they lived under in those days. As well as a cross-dressing exhibitionist. Some things you learn, you don't need to know. His lavish parties combined with the burning of Rome continued the economic chaos that had plagued Rome since the days of Tiberius, a couple of decades earlier. One unsuccessful plot to assassinate Nero, involving at least 19 senators as well as other leading citizens failed, resulting in his having 41 different people executed, including senators. This left Nero forever paranoid and untrusting. He even ordered his own mother put to death. Remember the remember mom that helped him get the office by killing his stepdad? Yeah, well, he had enough of her and got rid of her. He tried two or three different ways and finally had her stabbed to death. Now, why do I tell you that? I tell you that because you have to understand Nero was a madman. Nero was a, a complete, corrupt, and conscienceless lunatic. A lunatic who held the absolute power of life and death over everyone in the empire. That's what our brethren were living under. And when you understand him, and then you look at the fact that it was this madman to whom the Apostle Paul would eventually request to appear. Why on earth would Paul do that? He knew what kind of a man this was. Why on earth would he do that? Because he had been charged by the resurrected Lord with one overriding responsibility to tell everyone, everywhere, no matter who they were, no matter who was in power or what it might cost him as a result, about Jesus. That's why. And Paul committed his life to that. Turn to me first to Acts 20. Paul had been charged with that one overriding responsibility. Tell everyone, doesn't matter who. Doesn't matter who's in power. Doesn't matter what cost. Tell them about me, Jesus said. Paul did. Matter of fact, he testifies to that, if you will, in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Look what he says. From Miletus, he, that is Paul, sent to Ephesus, called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, which, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. But he had one overriding responsibility, and so he says, verse 20, how I kept nothing back that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had been charged with one overriding responsibility, and he did it. And he goes on to say, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except, he said, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't, but, but, but I do know one thing that's going to. God told me this, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. Paul says, I don't know what's coming. I get drunk, but the one thing I do know is going to happen. They're going to chain, they're going to lock me up like an animal. Yeah, I know that because God's made sure he let me know that. Question? Did that stop him from his one overriding responsibility to tell every, no, look at the next few verses. Look what he says. But none of these things move me. He said, I don't really care. Nor do I count my life dear to myself. 
so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That is as clear as you're going to see that one overriding responsibility that God gave him to tell everybody about the love of God. And in Paul's case, that included those in Rome at that time as well, Acts 23 and 11. And so, Paul wound up. God said, just as you've done in Jerusalem, you're going to do in Rome. Again, Acts 23 and verse 11. And so, Paul winds up appealing to Caesar Nero, Acts chapter 25, verses 10 through 12, and he sent to Rome to appear before that madman. And because the Apostle Paul refused, refused to declare anything less than the whole counsel of God to anybody who would listen, Acts 20 and verse 27, while he was in Rome, <laughs> he wound up converting part of Caesar's own household. Philippians chapter 1, verse 13, chapter 4 and verse 22. Paul was released from that imprisonment, it is believed, but his freedom and indeed his very life itself was quite short-lived. Going back to a short paragraph from that website, the greatest threat to Nero's reign was the Great Fire, which began on July the 19th, 64 AD. That fire lasted for six days. 10 of the city's 14 districts were destroyed, 10 out of 14. Hundreds died, thousands were left homeless, and looters ravaged the city of Rome. Although Nero was largely suspected of starting it, the blame fell upon the heads of the persecuted Christians. You will recall that secular history would tell us that that's the very event, that roundup of Christians, wherein Peter and Paul, as well as thousands upon thousands of the first century members of the Lord's Church were rounded up and brutally and horrifically tortured and put to death. If you have never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, don't read it before mealtime or bedtime, but read it. You see, brethren, the fact is that God denying or God-rejecting leaders and politicians have always been in office, in power, in high places of control of many nations, even before Jesus Christ was ever born. Do you remember Herod? Remember Herod in Acts, uh, Matthew chapter 2? Remember Herod's trying to kill the baby Jesus? So what does he do? He sends his armies in to kill all the boys two years old and under in Bethlehem. Brutal man. How can you even do such a thing? But God-rejecting leaders have always been in places of authority. You know what they do? They come. They rule. They go. And then they're gone. They come. They rule. They go. And they're gone. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 23 and verses 24 says of God, he brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. You ever blown on a dandelion that's white? But you see, our God, our King, our Lord, our ruler, and this kingdom of his, this kingdom of his which we are a part of, and his reign will last forever. One of the greatest things about being a Christian is the stability that we have. 
Nobody's taking God off the throne. Nobody. And so we have this consistent security. But you see, because of the fact that our God and his kingdom he's given us to be a part of will last forever. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25. Hebrews 12, 28 and 9. This is why, and I say this with all the love in my heart, but this is why you and I as Christians cannot afford to get completely, completely caught up in and consumed with the fleeting, momentary, ever-changing political landscape and leaders of our day. We can't. Because God is going to blow on them and they're going to be gone. Now, I don't care which side of the aisle you're on. I couldn't, whatever. It's still the same. He doesn't say, well, for this party, it doesn't say that. Paul tried to explain this very similar to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.4 when he said, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. Are you entangled in warfare? If you're a Christian, you better be nodding yes. We are in this for the souls of the lost. We are the Lord's army. We are at war with Satan for the souls of men. We can say, well, you know, we can sit back and say, well, you know, it's easy. No, it isn't. This is war. Used to have a brother come in the church building every Sunday. Man, it's a war out there. And I used to think, it's a nice, pretty day. What's he talking about? I finally came to understand, folks, it's a war zone out there. And we are in the fight for the souls of men. We are carrying forward with that fight. And so no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Just like Nathan's Devo on Wednesday night. Fabulous job, by the way. Just like his diva, God's got to be the number one priority. We can't get caught up in all this, this human stuff going on that's not going to last anyway. There were reports prior to this election, even amongst some who were Christians, that it would be, quote, the end of the world if XYZ happened. Brethren, Again, with all the love in my heart, I got a newsflash for us. When the end of the world comes, you're gonna have a lot bigger things to be thinking about than who's in the White House, okay? You with me on this? You're gonna have a lot bigger things to worry about than who's in the White House when the real end of the world hits. You see, for the Christian, it's not about who's in the White House. It's about who's in the Lord's house. It's not about who's in or out of the White House. It's about who's in or out of the Lord's House. As an example, this sermon, just so you know, this sermon was done before we knew the results of the election. Okay, just so you know. Okay, they're not targeting anybody in particular, necessarily. This was done before the results were known. And you know what I knew then? I knew that this lesson was going to be just as relevant no matter which side won or if nobody won or if they both won. Because it's still true. It's still true. Doesn't matter. My job and your job, every, yes, mom taught me not to point. My job and your job. Our job as blood-bought children of the living God has not and will not ever change. No matter who's in the White House for the next four years, the next four centuries, the next four millennia, or forever until the Lord comes to take us home, it's not gonna matter in four years, eight years, 12 years, 16, 20. Yes, I can do multiples of four. It isn't gonna matter. Our job's not gonna change. What is our job? Our job, we have been charged with one overriding responsibility, and that is to tell everybody who will listen about the love of our God and the giving of his son on the cross of Calvary, period in hopes that we can get them into the Lord's house. Because it don't matter who's in the White House. What matters to us should be much more who's in the Lord's house. Now, granted, some presidents, governors, judges, and other politicians are gonna make our job a little bit more difficult than others. Some are gonna make it a little easier than others. But it doesn't change the job. 
at all. And when we think that it's going to be a little too costly or too dif difficult, we need to go back and remember what our first century brethren faced who were charged with the same thing. Let me ask you a question. I'm going to get all fantasy on you here for a minute. What do you think would happen if a time machine actually existed? Like I said, work with me here. And some of our first century brethren could move up into modern day America and we go back there and we tell them, oh man, I don't know what I'm going to do. Life is so awful because, you know, this has happened or that has happened or so-and-so's won the election or so-and-so's lost the election, whatever, whatever. And they knew, what do you suppose they'd do? Do you suppose they'd laugh us out of the church building? They were being dragged out of their homes, wives, husbands, imprisoned and put to death because they were members of the church. And we think it's the end of the world? So, brethren, is this a time to be worried, frightened, terrified, fearful about our future? Nope. Nope. And this is going around on the internet. Nope. It isn't. You know why? <laughs> my king was not voted out of office. Nobody threw my king off the throne. Period. Yours either. He is still in complete command and control, Psalm 2. And so my job, my loyalty, my responsibility to him has not changed one single iota either. You know what it is? I've been charged with one lone responsibility. Go tell others what an awesome God I got. Now, some questions. Well, that somebody might ask in response to that. Well, what, what, what if they tax or take away all your earthly possessions because you preach the gospel and tell people about Jesus? What you gonna do? You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna keep on preaching and teaching and telling people about Jesus. I'm gonna keep on assembling with the saints for worship and seeking to live a faithful Christian life in the same way that the Hebrew writer encouraged those teetering Christians in the first century in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 through 39 to do. That's what I'm gonna do. That's what scripture says to do. Well, what if it ever gets to the point, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the road? What if it ever gets to the point that you're arrested for preaching? I'm going to keep on preaching. I'm going to keep on preaching the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, same way Peter and John did when they got arrested for it. Did our first century brothers and sisters get arrested for it? Yep, what did they do? Told them about Jesus. Yep. Well, well. Well, what if they put you in jail or prison or, or put you on trial? Okay. And I'll say this lightly. I thought about this really hard. I'm going to keep on preaching the same resurrected Jesus Christ and the faith once delivered for all the saints to the guards, to the inmates, to anybody else who will listen just the way Paul did. That's what I'm going to do. But what if they take your life for it? then I pray that I may be found as full of faith as my brother Stephen in Acts chapter 7. For to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, don't threaten me with heaven. Now as I say all of this, some of you may be thinking, yeah, well, that's okay, and you can stand up there and huff and puff all you want, but in reality, none of that stuff is going to happen to a Christian in modern-day America, no matter who's in power. Okay, Doug? You know what? You know what? You're absolutely right. Guess we don't have it so bad after all, huh? You're right. So guess we don't have it so bad after all. 
So brethren, I want to leave you with this. This election cycle, next election cycle, as many election cycles as you see, no matter who gets in office, no matter what, no matter what they think or don't think or do or don't do, don't be terrified about the future. God is still on the throne. You with me on this? You better be, or we need a Bible study. God is still on the throne. We are still his people. We are still part of an eternal kingdom which cannot be shaken, Hebrews 12. And so our job is that one lone responsibility the resurrected Lord told all of his followers to do. Go tell somebody about me. We started out this year with 2020 vision thinking about reaching out to the lost. And we've had a few conversions, but not a lot. And I know there's been COVID and a whole bunch of other stuff. I understand that. I've, I've lived through it too, <laughs> okay? But brethren, we need to go tell somebody about the love of our Lord this week. We really do. Because when the world really does come to an end, when it really is the end of the world, that's the only thing that's gonna matter, is who's in, the Lord's house. Question this morning, are you in the Lord's house? And I'm not talking about this building. Are you part of the church, that body of people who have had their sins washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ? That's the Lord's house. It is a spiritual body, Ephesians chapter two. It is a spiritual house. You know, in Acts chapter two, verses 37 through 47, the Lord added to the church those who repented turned to him and were baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That's how he added to his house in Acts 2. And you know, a lot in our world has changed in the last 2,000 years or so since that was written, since that was instituted. A lot has changed. Do you know countless rulers have come and gone in the last 2,000 years? Nations have come and gone. People have come and gone. But you know, Entrance into that kingdom has not changed one iota in the last 2,000. You know why? Because that kingdom hasn't changed one iota in the last 2,000 years. It's outlasted all of those emperors. It's outlasted Hitler, and, and it's outlasted all leaders and all kinds. And you know what? It's going to be here till the Lord comes to take it home, because that's what he said. So if you're not a part of that kingdom, if you're not a part of that Lord's house, by, by repenting, turning to God, being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, becoming part of that church, you need to be. Because it is the only thing on this planet that is going to last forever. Don't you want to be a part of that kingdom, with that king who cannot be dethroned, overruled, outvoted, or thrown out of office. I love my Lord, don't you? If you'd make him your Lord this morning, or if you need prayers to be stronger in your Lord, please come to the front as we stand and as we sing.